Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to continue our, our journey this morning through the Old Testament book of Judges. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and make your way to the book of Judges. We're going to pick up in chapter 7 and make our way through chapter 7 and 8 this morning as we take our second week to look at the story of Gideon. Last week, if you were with us, we, we started to walk through this story and, and in some sense take a fresh look at Gideon. Most of us have learned about Gideon through, his, through the stories of his might and his battles against the Midianites and leading the army of 300 Israelites against 132,000 Midianites. And we've always thought of Gideon being this mighty man of valor. And we've always wondered, how can we be more like Gideon? But we took our time last week to kind of walk through the story and, and try to understand, hopefully, that you know what? We're already more like Gideon than we probably realize. That any might or valor that Gideon demonstrated was simply the gift of the grace of God working through him. When we met Gideon, he was a fearful Israelite hiding in a wine press trying to thresh wheat with the gods of Baal and the Asherahs in his backyard. At best, he was a fearful worshiper of God whose heart was divided between love for the Lord and love for the place in which he lived and the gods of it. Last week, as we began to walk through the story and look at Gideon, we saw time and time again God's patient love towards him, stooping down to reassure Gideon again in his moments of fear of his promise to be with him and the promise of his might to work through him so that regardless of wherever Gideon went in obedience to the Lord, he could go without fear knowing that God was with him and it was God who was working through him. And last week, as we went through the first half of the story, we, we ended with God indeed doing what he had promised. And through Gideon and the army of 300, the Lord had defeated the army of the Midianites and had thrown off the yoke of Midianite oppression. But as we alluded to at the beginning last week, that's not how the story ends. That's not the end of the story. There's still more. So you and I like stories with happy endings. So when we talk about Gideon, that's where we always stop. That's a happy ending. Army of 300 defeating an army of 132,000, man of valor, mighty in victory. But the story keeps going and it doesn't have a happy ending. There's not going to be anything that I can do to make it happy. In fact, from this point in the middle of Gideon's life through the rest of the book of Judges, the progressive cycle of sin and rebellion that we see in the life of Israel gets worse. Most of us, if we have any familiarity with judges, we we talk about this cycle that happens every week of idolatry and sin and consequence and judgment and crying out to the Lord and the Lord raising up a deliverer and it happens over and over again. Well, starting now, that whole cycle just goes down. Every progressive person we see God raise up as a deliverer, eh, it's a little more shady than the one before it. And the sin of God's people just is on a downward trajectory towards destruction. Unfortunately, there's no happy ending to the story of Gideon. When we met him last week and we walked through the first part of his life, we saw his continued need for the reassurance of God, continued reassurance in God's word of promise to him, God's promise of being present with him. And we saw that no matter what God did and how often he continued to reassure Gideon, the response of Gideon to God's patient reassurance wasn't an increased confidence in God. It wasn't, as we'll see, the cultivation of humility. Rather, the confidence that grew in Gideon's heart became misplaced. 
And as we go through the second half of his life, the second half of his story, we get a front row seat to the consequences of misplaced confidence in the hearts of God's people. When the the patient, loving reassurance of God to Gideon did not cultivate in him an appropriate humility and confidence in who God was for him and who God promised to be through him, that confidence grew somewhere else. And misplaced confidence in the hearts of God's people has devastating consequences. And that's what we get to see in the second half of this story. And there's an invitation that God will have for us even now in light of this. So let's pray and then we'll see what God has for us in the story this morning. Father, we thank you for the time we have together now as your people, surrendering ourselves in this moment to your word. Lord, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do the miracle that only you can do and you would help us in here this morning, each of us to hear your voice and your word. I know there are things that I'm going to say that could cause distraction. Lord, I I ask that you would just cause anything that I would do to distract us from hearing your voice and your word just to fall away. Lord, what we want is to hear you, that we might be transformed by your spirit progressively into the likeness of your son. So we ask that you would do that for us and with us this morning for his glory and his name and our joy. Amen. Well, it's basketball season in my house, but it's not just basketball season. It's also something new for us this year. It's spelling bee season. If any of you have kids in that stage right now, but it's spelling bee season. And what that means is that at any point during the afternoon or evening, there is going to be a young child trying to use a word they don't understand in a conversation in a way that it was never intended to be used. Over and over again in the house lately, it's kind of like our own little princess bride. You know, you keep using that word. Well, I don't think it means what you think it means. And they keep trying and it's like, okay, well, you know, we're going to help you. But the other night, there was a word that kept being used and and it was not being used correctly. And it was the word arrogant or arrogance. And so when one of the kids was being quizzed on their spelling bee words, I took that chance to grab the dictionary and to look up the dictionary definition of arrogant or arrogance, hoping to help them understand the word and then how they could use it with one another appropriately. And I opened up the dictionary, and and I want you to hear the definitions that Webster gives for this word, because it's going to help us as we go through the last half of Gideon's life. Webster defines arrogance as an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims or assumptions. Now, in trying to help them understand that definition, that was a little tough. But thankfully, Webster also gives you a definition if you're trying to teach kids, So here's Webster's definition of arrogance if you're trying to teach kids. A person's sense of his or her own importance that shows itself in a proud or insulting way. And trying to help them then understand arrogant or arrogance with that, we realize I need a little more clarity because our ages kind of span. And thankfully, Webster's gives you a definition if you're trying to teach a word to someone learning English as a second language. So here is the ESL definition from Webster's of arrogant or arrogance. An insulting way of thinking or behaving that comes from believing that you're better, smarter, or more important than other people. And as I tried to help them understand this word so that they could then use it with one another appropriately, I began to see it in light of the story that we're going through. You see, rather than cultivating a humility in response to God's repeated kindness and reassurance of him, of God's continued reassurance towards Gideon of who he was for him and who he was going to be through him, rather than growing in humility there, 
even when God used him to defeat the Midianites. Gideon's fearfulness, Gideon's gutlessness actually grew into arrogance. As we go through the second half of the story, I want you to listen and I want you to watch how Gideon's misplaced confidence shows up in self-importance that shows itself in a proud and insulting way. How his misplaced confidence produces the fruit of an overbearing manner, presumptuous claims or assumptions, believing that he's better, smarter, or more important than other people. See, arrogance is the fruit of misplaced confidence. And when you and I, by the grace of God and the help of other people, begin to see this kind of arrogance born out in our life in a myriad of ways, it's like a warning light on the dashboard of your car telling you there's something wrong with the engine. The, the fruit of misplaced confidence is this kind of arrogance. And we're gonna see all of those definitions played out in Gideon's life. And they're warning signs that something's happening in the heart. The confidence of his heart is shifting. It's being placed into something other than who God is for him, the promises of God to him, and who God is being through him. It's going somewhere else. And we're gonna see how it begins to shift in his heart and bears the fruit through his life. So if you've got your Bible, we're gonna pick it up in chapter seven. Last week, we, we kind of came to an abrupt ending in the middle of the story. God had reassured Gideon in his fear. If you remember chapter seven, verse 10, God knows Gideon. He knows his weakness. He knows his fearfulness. So on the night before he's gonna go into battle with the Midianites, God says, you know what, Gideon? I know you're afraid. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your servant and go down to the edge of the camp of the Midianites. And when you get there, you're gonna hear something. So Gideon obeys and he goes down. You might remember the story from last week. I'll catch everybody else up. He takes his servant down to the edge of the camp of the Midianites. And lo and behold, just as God said, Gideon overhears something. Two Midianite soldiers are having a conversation. One of them's telling the other one that he had a dream. And in that dream, a big barley loaf rolled down the hill and into the camp of the Midianites and flattened the tent. And God gave his friend, the other Midianite soldier right there talking to him, the interpretation of the dream. And the interpretation was, this is none other than the army of the Lord, the hand of Gideon. It's coming to defeat the Midianites. We're done. They're going to defeat us. So if you might remember in the story, chapter seven, verse 15, it says, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And, and Gideon led the army in that most unexpected way of taking torches in an empty jar and trumpets and blowing the trumpets and smashing the torches. And then God did the rest, if you might remember, if you remember the story. God calls the soldiers to turn their swords on each other. And in that moment, God won victory over the Midianites. But in that same moment of reassurance, again, God stooping down to assure Gideon in his fear of his promise to be with him and his promise to work through him. It was at this point you can begin to see the confidence in Gideon's heart has not grown in who God is for him and what God is saying about him, but it's shifting to something else. Rather than being more confident in the promise of God and what that means for him and how he lives, we begin to see lived out in his life a shifting of confidence. Watch this, verse 18, Gideon comes down and he's gonna to talk to the troops and he says, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me are gonna blow their trumpets on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for, what's your Bible say? Gideon, right? God just showed me that again, we are going to defeat the Midianites. He is gonna get victory over them. So here's what I want you to do as you charge to fight for the Lord and for me. 
It's about me too. So verse 22 says, when they blew the trumpets, the the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the enemy. And we'll learn in chapter eight here in just a minute that there were 132,000 that started in the Midianite camp. 120 died at the hands of their own men so that 15,000 were left. And God indeed won the battle just as he had promised. But Gideon needed a little glory too. Something in his heart had begun to shift. His confidence wasn't squarely secured in who God was and what God had said. Now there's some confidence growing in Gideon's heart about what he can do. And you'll see that here, though God defeats the Midianites and it's over. 15,000 left of 132,000. You read the story, the 15,000 left begin to flee. They're gonna go back home. It's over. Oppression is done. God has set them free. But Gideon's not done. Gideon's not done with them yet. You begin to find in the story of Gideon right here as this confidence internally is shifting in his heart and he's gonna begin living in a particular way, you begin to see that there's no more listening to the Lord in Gideon's life here. No more speaking of the Lord to Gideon in the rest of the story. That was the last time we're gonna learn of the Lord when God tells him to go down to listen to this dream. Something else is driving Gideon. Yes, he's confident, but it's no longer in who God, has, who God is and what God has said about him. Gideon's confidence is somewhere else. And you're reminded of that definition of arrogance, a person's own sense of self-importance that shows itself in a proud and insulting way. When the armies are defeated, Gideon's not done. Flip over to chapter eight, verse 10. We're gonna come back to what we skip, I promise. But flip over to chapter eight, verse 10. It says that Zeba and Zalmunna they were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 who drew the sword. These are the two kings of the Midianites, Zeba and Zalmunna. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers of the east to Nobah and Jogobaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. Now, it would be helpful if I had a map because you would understand what's being said. And there's a few times in the story a map would be helpful. So I'll try to paint a picture for you. Do you know why the army, the remaining 15,000 and their two kings felt secure? Because they were going back to their home. They had fled the battle. They had lost 120,000 men died at the hands of their own people. So they're running back home and they're almost home. So they feel secure now. They're out of the land of the Israelites. But Gideon has chased them all the way back to their home. He has taken his 300 men and pursued them back to the area of the Midianite land. So verse 12 says, Zeba and Zalmunna fled and he pursued them and captured them. Zeba and Zalmunna and he threw the enemy into a panic. Here's the thing. It's a lot of tenacity on Gideon's part to chase them back into their land. But did God tell him to do it? Had God already defeated the enemy? Had God gone before Gideon and defeated the Midianites for his people? Yes, 120,000 dead, 15,000 going home, getting out of there. But Gideon chases them. Why? Verse 18. Gideon caught them, and he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled a son of the king. And Gideon said to them, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them, I would not kill you. Why did Gideon chase them all the way into their own land after the Lord defeated them? He wanted revenge. 
Vengeance was his. They had killed his family. So Gideon, rather than listening to the Lord, responding in worship to what the Lord had done on his behalf, seeks out vengeance in his own. So in verse 20, Gideon says to Jather, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Fearful Gideon hiding in the wine press from the Midianites, me from the weakest clans, now is Mr. Big Stuff in his own mind and he's caught these two kings and he wants them to die at the hand of his son. I'm not just gonna kill you, I'm gonna humiliate you. I'm going to embarrass you to no end. But his son wouldn't do it. And so the kings look at Gideon And they say, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. Oh, you're weak. You want your son to kill us. If you're a man, you get up and do it. So Gideon gets up and he kills Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. But we're beginning to see something fleshed out that's happening in the heart. Gideon's own sense of his own importance is beginning to show itself off in proud and even insulting ways. But he's not alone. He's not alone in the shifting of his confidence that's beginning to to bear itself out in the way people are living. Flip back to chapter seven, what we we skipped over. We're gonna come back to it. Chapter seven, verse 23. The Lord has caused the armies of Midian to turn their their swords on each other. 120,000 have died and now they're all fleeing back to their land. That's where we're going back to. Verse 23, the army fled and they made it as far as the border of Abel Meholoah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters. So Gideon now, as the 15,000 begin to flee, he sends messengers out to the rest of the tribes. And he says, send all of your men down, in particular Ephraim, come down and I want your men to cut off the Jordan. Don't let them get across the Jordan back into their own safety. Come down and cut them off of the pass. That's what Gideon's doing. And so as you keep reading, you find out that the men of Ephraim did exactly what Gideon said. They called him out and they captured the waters and they captured two princes of Midian, verse 25 says, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. So huge success. God defeats the big army and as the little ones flee, Gideon calls Ephraim down to cut off the army trying to cross the water. They do it and they capture two princes and kill two princes. Seems great. Look at verse eight. The men of Ephraim bring the heads of the princes to Gideon and they say to him, what's this that you've done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. What's happening right there? Ephraim's feelings are hurt. Don't you know who we are? Don't you know the size of our tribe? How dare you not call us into fight in the beginning? How dare you reserve that glory for yourself? Why do you wait so long to to call us in? An inflated sense of self-importance. It begins to show itself in a myriad of ways. Ephraim can't cope with the success of Gideon. Can't cope with the success of the rest of the tribes because they weren't involved. They needed some of the glory for themselves. And see, here's the thing. When our confidence begins to shift from what God says about who we are because of who he is and what God has promised to be for us and, and in us and through us, when it begins to shift in our hearts, 
when our confidence begins to land somewhere else, maybe in what we think we can do or what we think we can have or what other people might say about us and the reputation we have, when our confidence begins to shift, then glory becomes an issue. All of a sudden, recognition and glory becomes an issue. It's for the Lord. But, but me too. Me too. For, for the Lord, for, for his name and, and for his glory. But I need you to understand just how important and necessary I was for this. This was the most frightening part of the story for me this week. I got to this part and began to wrestle through this part and I was already re- ready to skip over to the rest of the stories in Judges, which are horrific, by the way. This absolutely frightens me because I can see places in my own heart and in my own life by the grace of God where, where my confidence is, is like shifting sand. Where God says, this is who I am for you. This is who I am in you. This is who I am through you for my glory. And I say yes and amen, but, but what about me too? You see, I realize, and I'll just make it as personal as I can, there's an inner monologue every single one of us have where we talk to ourselves and tell ourselves certain things in various situations. You know your inner monologue, don't you? And there's an inner monologue that happens in me, and by the grace of God, when, when, he, when he shows me that it's actually happening, I can begin to see this kind of arrogance bearing itself out in my heart and in my mind that alerts me to something going on in my heart. That my confidence is no longer squarely on who God says I am and who he is in me and for me and through me, but I need people to see just how necessary I am to what he's doing. I need people to see just how indispensable I am to what God is doing. So here's a way that it actually happens. You really want to know how it works? I'll give you the most practical way that it works out in my heart. For nine years, we've stood up here at the beginning of every sermon, and whoever's preaching says the same thing nearly every single time, 52 weeks a year. Hi, my name is Robert, Raymond, Chris, whoever. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. That's a strategic decision, because God has given this church nine pastors who share in the responsibility for the shepherding of this church. No one carries any more responsibility than the other. But there's an inner monologue that goes on in my heart. And when I begin to listen to it and, and God begins to show me that it's actually happening, again, like that warning sign on the dashboard, I get up here and do you know what I want to say? My name's Robert. I'm the senior pastor here at Redemption Hill. I need you to understand that I'm necessary here. I need you to understand that what God's doing here is something that I'm indispensable to. It's for the Lord's glory that we do everything we do, but please, I need a little recognition for what's going on. And so there's a strategic decision that we made nine years ago to say something because it communicates a truth about what God has done in his church, but it's a personal decision for me too. Because every single time I say it, I'm doing battle with the shifting of the confidence in my heart where there's part of me that can give in to this desire to be known by what I do, to be recognized for what I do, to be seen as indispensable in what God's doing here. It's for the Lord, yes, but, but me too. Don't, don't forget me. See, this, this arrogance that Webster has defined, and we're seeing played out in a myriad of ways in, in Gideon's life, we see in our own heart, and it's just the fruit of a shifting confidence. And by the grace of God, when we see it, when God helps us to see it, he gives us friends to help us see it. He, he gives his spirit to us to help us see it. And we begin to hear it in our own minds. We see it in our own lives. It's a warning to us. There, there's something shifting. 
Your confidence is shifting. And we get a chance to address it. Now, we're going to see it shift even more for Gideon. We're going to see more ways that the confidence shifts in the heart by the way it lives itself out in our lives. So we'll keep going because I want you to see the whole story. Surprisingly, Gideon responded to Ephraim in a rather wise and balanced way. You can read it there in the beginning of chapter 8 and verse 2. Gideon looks at the men of Ephraim who have accused him now because their feelings are hurt. And he says, what have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezar? God's given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And so their anger against him subsided when he said this. They, they weren't able to see all that God was able to do through the tribes of Israel and through their hands. Rather, they could only focus on what they didn't get to do. They didn't get asked to the party early. They didn't get asked to the ministry in the beginning. Rather than seeing all that God was able to do through his people and how they got to come in and play a part, all they could see was what they didn't get to do. And Gideon wisely helped reshift their focus. It's a wise and balanced response from Gideon. It's surprising because what we're about to watch is just a, a death spiral of arrogance born out of a misplaced confidence in the heart. And if we're honest and we sit with it a little bit, not just this morning, but this week, we, we can see how this works itself out in our own life. Chapter eight, verse four Gideon came to the Jordan and he crossed over. He and his 300 men who were with him and they were exhausted. And he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. You heard what he just said, right? That you didn't get lost on that. When I come back with these people, I'm literally going to beat you with thorns. All right? That's what a grown man just said to another bunch of grown men. So he kept going. Verse 8, he went to Penuel. And he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he said to the men of Penuel, fine, when I come back in peace, I'm going to break down your tower. So again, a map will come in handy here to understand what's happening. Succoth and Penuel are tribes and towns that are right on the edge of what's called the land of the east. So in this whole chapter in the story of, of Gideon, you keep hearing about the tribes of the east coming in, the Midianites. The edge of the border between the Israelites and the Midianites were Succoth and Penuel, which means every single harvest, every single year, when the tribes of the Midianites would gather together on the edge of the land, getting ready to come in and raid Israel and take all their harvest and all their animals, it was Succoth and Penuel that would suffer the brunt of the Midianite oppression. They were right there on the edge. This is who suffered the most. So Gideon comes to them and says, I'm chasing the kings of the Midianites. Can you give me some bread and give my men some bread because we're going to go get them? And Succoth and Penuel acting in their own sense of self-interest and preservation, they say no. Because if you're not successful and the Midianites hear about us trying to help you chase their kings, what's going to happen to us next year? We already suffer the most. If you're not successful, they're going to take it out on us. So in their own sense of self-preservation, rather than helping their fellow brothers of the Lord, rather than helping their fellow Israelites, they're more worried about themselves, but they say, no, we can't help you because if you're not successful, we're in trouble. But more than them not helping their fellow Israelites, did you really listen to what Gideon said to them? This man hiding in the wine press, 
I'm from the weakest clan. He looks at his own people and says, when this is done, I'm going to come back and literally whip you with briars and thorns. I'm going to come down and tear down part of your city. See, this is the progressive degeneration of God's people you're going to see in Judges. This is the first instance of many that we'll see of violence between God's people. So far, it's always been people oppressing Israel and Israel having to deal with other people. Now Gideon is threatening violence against his own people. And guess what? He follows through. Verse 13, Gideon returned from battle by the ascent of Herez and he captured a young man of Succoth and he questioned him. So now he captures another Israelite who's from the town that refused to help him and his men. And he questions him and he writes down, this man writes down for Gideon all the names of the officials and the elders of the town, 77 men. In verse 15, Gideon came to the men of Succoth and said, behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me. He brings the two kings that he captures and he puts them in front of the men and says, you know what? You taunted me saying, are they in my hand? Do you have them yet? See, what these men said to Gideon out of sense of self-preservation, selfishness and fear, I'll give it that, but out of self-preservation, Gideon heard as an insult to his ability. His confidence has shifted. Now you're saying, I can't do what I said I'm gonna do? Watch this. He brings them back and look at what it actually says. Verse 16, he took the elders of the city and took thorns of the wilderness and the briars and with them he taught the men of Succoth a lesson. That's a very kind way of saying it. But even worse, verse 17, he broke down the tower of Penuel, just like he said he would. But in doing it, he killed all the men of the city. Arrogance, the fruit of misplaced confidence, an insulting way of thinking or behaving that comes from believing you're better, smarter, or more important than other people. And it's bearing fruit in the life of Gideon. But there was another definition and you can see it in his life. The fruit of misplaced confidence, an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims or assumptions. Look at verse 22. It's all done. Battle's over. Kings captured. Princes dead. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Before Israel went to battle with the Midianites, and they had their entire troops, what did God say to Gideon? You remember? He said, you know what? You've got too many soldiers. Lest you win this battle and begin to think that it was by your own might that you won this thing, here's what I'm going to do. Do you remember what he did? He thinned the armies of Israel down to 300. And then he turned the swords of 120,000 Midianites against themselves. But for the Lord and Gideon, right? Now Israel thinks that it was Gideon who delivered them, who saved them. But listen to what Gideon says, verse 23. Gideon said to them, I'm not going to rule over you. My son won't rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now you're going to begin to see the fruit of misplaced confidence all over the place. Israel believes that it was actually Gideon who delivered them. And in his heart, Gideon has begun to believe the same thing. What he says sounds good, right? No, 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 for the Lord. Now, I'm not going to rule over you. That's God's to rule over you. I won't do it. But here's the thing. Every single one of you knows that you can say whatever you want because the reality of what lies in your heart is going to somehow bear itself out in your life. The truth of what you really believe, 
where your confidence really lies. It is going to shape the way that you live regardless of what you say with your mouth. Jerubbabel, verse 29, that's the name that was given to Gideon when he tore down the altar of Baal. The son of Joash, Gideon went to live in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Do you know who had many wives back in those days? Kings. That's who had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? My father is king. Be our king. No, 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 no. That's for the Lord's to do. Have you met my son? Tell him your name. My dad's king. Oh, is that from your wife? No, it was from my concubine. My other wives are over here. We all know what it is to say one thing with our mouth, but the reality of it is what our hearts find, the confidence our hearts rest in, it will find its way out in our life. The fruit of misplaced confidence, arrogance, an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims or assumptions, it gets even worse if setting up his own kingdom isn't bad enough. Listen to what he does. Verse 24, Gideon says to the rest of the Israelites, let me make a request of you. So they ask him something, be our king. He says, no, 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 publicly, I'm not going to be your king. In his heart, he wanted nothing more. But now let me ask you something in return, since I've been so humble before you. Let me ask you something. Every one of you, give me the earrings from your spoil. They all had golden earrings because the Midianites, they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, well, we, we will live in, lovingly give them to you. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a 1,700 shekels of gold. It's about 43 pounds. 43 pounds of pure gold earrings. Now, besides that, it says, he also got the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings. So now he's got some purple king clothes. I'm not going to be your king, but give me the purple king clothes. Give me the crescents that go around the king's horses. I got my wives, I got my concubines. And by the way, have you met my son? His dad is the king. But then it says, it goes on. He takes all of this gold and he makes for himself out of all that was given to him an ephod and he put it in his city in Ophrah and all of Israel whored after it there and became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Do you know what an ephod is? Is that a familiar word to you? In the Old Testament, it's one of the garments that God said that the high priest was meant to wear. And it was a cloak that the high priest would wear. And on the, on the chest of the cloak were 12 uh, gemstones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And there was a little pocket for what was called the umim and the thumim. And that was used by the high priest to help discern the will of the Lord in a particular situation. It's what the Lord had told him to do. So Gideon, I'm not going to be your king, but give me your stuff and the purple clothes and the wives, makes for himself an ephod that was only rightly to be worn by the high priest in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. Gideon sets himself up as an alternative high priest and basically says, if you're gonna worship the Lord and find discernment for his will down the road, you have to come to me. I put it in my backyard. Do you remember what was in his backyard when the story started? The idols, the gods of Baal and the Asherah. Now he makes an ephod for himself and calls the people to worship. The man whom the Holy Spirit wore, we saw last week, like a cloak, has now cloaked his people with idolatry in his own home. And it's become a snare. 
The gentle reassurance of the Lord wasn't enough for Gideon. He now had to have this and the ephod. He couldn't just be a reassured of who God was for him and who God was through him by his promises. He had to be the king and the priest. He had to have it all. God plus those things. The confidence of his heart had begun to shift. And as soon as he died, you see it in verse 33, all the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Baal Bereth, Baal the covenant. He's the one who promised. He's the God of the promise. And the people of Israel, it says in verse 34, did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. The one that God used hiding in a wine press to tear down the altars of Baal and used to lead his people out of the oppression of the Midianites has now returned his people back into the oppression of false worship. The story does not have a happy ending. You read there in verse 28 that God still, in light of all this, graciously gave the people 40 years of peace. But you know what? That's the last time you're going to hear that refrain in the book of Judges. So far, every time, God has given them more peace than he gave them oppression. This is the last time. You're not going to hear of the land and the people having any more rest or any more peace after this. This fearful man who, who hides in a wine press when the angel of the Lord comes to meet him, who heard the word of the Lord, the promise of God to be with him, that God was with him wherever he went so that when God sent him out in every act of obedience that God would send him to do, God would be with him and he would do it in the might of the Lord so that regardless of whatever he was doing, he had no reason to fear because he knew from the Lord himself that he was with him and that he was going out in his might. This guy, rather than growing in confidence in who God is for him because of what God has said about him and what God has promised to do through him, the confidence of his heart has shifted. Now he no longer understands himself based on what God has said. I'm no longer this. His confidence has shifted over to what he can do. We're not gonna help you. We don't see them in your hands. Let me show you what I can do. Let me show you what I can do. His confidence became in what he could do or what he had or what other people thought about him. It all became for for God, yes, but, but for me too. The Lord promised his presence to him. He assured him over and over again. He empowered him. But it seemed as though in all of it, Gideon wasn't able to receive it. I couldn't find another word for that. He wasn't able to take the the assuring, reassuring promises of God that God would come and speak to him. He wasn't able to receive it. And when I say receive it, he wasn't able to take it in such a way that it began to shape the way he saw himself and the way that he lived. He heard it. He accepted it. We see him then go and obey, but he didn't grow in a confidence based in what God had said to him and all that God had promised to him. So he constantly needed more. He constantly needed something else. So it could become for the Lord and for me. It shifted in his heart. No, I'm not going to be your king, but you know, I'll take the purple clothes and I'll take the wives and have you met my son? His dad's the king. And you know what? I'm the high priest too. For the Lord, yes. But for me, to the arrogance we see in Gideon's life through all these different things that he does, they're simply the fruit of misplaced confidence in his heart. 
inconsistency, hypocrisy in the Christian life, saying one thing while doing something else, it's simply the fruit of misplaced confidence. When our confidence shifts from who God is for us in his son, who God is in us by his spirit, and all that God has promised to do through us by his grace, and it shifts, and our heart begins to believe that the love that God has for us and all that God could do through us is based on who we are or what we have or what we can do, and we're more preoccupied by what others say about us, and that determines how the Lord sees us, then it becomes a battle, like we saw in Gideon's life, for glory and for recognition, and we can see right there, like the dashboard of a car, Something's happening. It's a warning light. Confidence is shifting. There's something happening under the hood. Something's got to be addressed. It's not a happy story. This kind of shifting consequence, this kind of shifting confidence has tragic consequences for God's people. So, what in the world could be God's invitation to us? in light of this, this morning. See, every day God is inviting you as his people. He's giving you an invitation. Every single day he's inviting you to something. I love how the psalmist says it. His mercies are new every single morning. Every single day he's inviting you to something. But you and I, when our confidence gets shifted, we tend to take his invitation and think he's directing us to go do something when in reality, every day he's inviting us to something and it's relational. It's knowing him. It's being with him because it's in being with him that we can become reassured of who he is for us, what he says about us and all that he's promised to be for us. And so he invites us to himself. The invitation that comes from this story, I think, is an invitation to come to him again and to learn again what it means to be loved by him. You and I, as his people, as his saints, this thing is gonna kill me. He invites us again to come to him that we might learn again what it means to be loved by him. See, you and I are no different than Gideon hiding in a wine press with false gods in our backyard. It was him that came to us first. He loved us first. And you and I, when our confidence begins to shift, that that shifting sand of our own heart, he invites us back to him to learn again what it means to be loved by him, to receive his love for us to recognize that his love towards us isn't based in any way, shape, form, or fashion on what you can do for him, what you can acquire for his purpose, or what people might think about you at all. The invitation when you sit and you look at the life of Gideon and watch the consequences of this misplaced confidence in the heart, the invitation to God's people is to come to him again, to be reminded and assured again of who he is for us, but with that, I think there's another invitation that God gives his people. He he calls us to come, to, to learn again, to be reminded again of what it is to be loved by him, but I think he calls us again to be with him, to be reminded anew of who we are by his grace. I think you and I have a hard time receiving or accepting what God says about us because of his work for us through his son. When our hearts begin to shift and the confidence begins to change and and it becomes more about what we can do or what we have or what other people say about us, we're reflecting through our lives something that's happening in our heart that we're not able to accept and to live out of in light of what God says about us. You are his beloved. By the work of his son, his sacrifice in your place for your sin, you are now God's child. 
The invitation God gives his people in reflecting through the consequences of Gideon's life and the shifting sands of his own heart is to be reminded again and renewed again to come to God, to be with God again, come face to face with him again and allow his presence to renew in your heart a confidence of who you are in his eyes. It's not what you do, it's not what you say, it's not what others think about you. Who you are is fully shaped and defined by what God says about you. And it's growing in that confidence and being face to face with him again and a renewed assurance of his love towards us and what he says about us that produces a faithful and consistent and a fruitful Christian life. Inconsistency, hypocrisy, it's born out of a shifting confidence. That's where it comes from. A faithful, consistent, fruitful life to the glory of God is born out of a growing confidence of God's love for us and our ability to receive that love and what God says about us through his son and our willingness to accept it and live in light of it. We're always looking for something else. And whenever we find ourselves looking for something else, we can recognize it's like a warning light again that something's happening in our hearts. Gideon, you realize he made the ephod not in direct offense to God, but in an effort to have God speak to him and something else. He had known the the gracious assurance of God and he had known the spirit of God working through him. Now he felt like that wasn't enough. I need this too. Then I think I'll know I'll be okay. See, God invites us to be with him, to come to him, to commune with him, to know him, to speak with him because it's in being with him that he reassures us again of his love towards us and what he says about us and it's that kind of presence with him that cultivates in us a confidence in who he says we are and how he has loved us and it's in doing that that we recognize there's nothing else that we can have or, or need any more than knowing his love for us through his son. It's that kind of foundation that begins to produce by the grace of God the fruit of his spirit's presence in our life. It's that kind of confidence that comes out of being with him. Nothing you can go do. I can't give you a book to read or or a list of things to accomplish that will change it. It's being with him and hearing again from him how he loves you and how he sees you. What he's done for you and who he promises to be for you that produces in you a fruitful and effective life to the glory of God. And it's his spirit in you that does that work that helps you see when in your heart the confidence is shifting and you go, yes, a fruitful life to the glory of God, but me too. And he helps us to see it that we might be able to turn from it and repent of it. And he's given us the the precious reminders of his word to help us to hear again, to be renewed again in what he says about us. He gives us the faithful witness of his people to help us, to remind us, to stir us up in an understanding and a confidence in who we are and to help us see when the dashboard lights are on, when, when the arrogance is flowing out that we might be able to address it in our hearts. But every single time we gather, my, my favorite part of our gathering together, he gives us another reminder He knows how forgetful you and I are. He knows you. 
The psalmist says he knows your frame. He knows your weakness. He knows your fearfulness. He knows your forgetfulness. And so every time we come together, he speaks to us through his word. He encourages us through the relationships that we have together, but he reminds us of his grace towards us and his love for us and what he says about us as we receive a meal together. See, in just a minute, as the musicians begin to play, you're going to have a couple of minutes to just reflect on God's word and, and what God's word has said to you and to deal with him. But then, as his people, saints, you're going to have a chance to stand up and come forward and take a piece of bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken in your place for your sins, to dip it in a cup of juice, remembering the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do that, you're doing battle with misplaced confidence. Because when you pick up that bread and you dip it in that cup, you're remembering that there's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. That his love for you and his acceptance of you and his definition of you is not based at all on what you can do. It's based completely on what his son did for you in your place. You can take that bread as an act of worship, dip it in that cup as an act of battle. Doing battle with a misplaced confidence. Remembering he has done it for you in your place. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. His love for you and his word over you is not based on your accomplishments. It's not based on what you can acquire. It's not based on what others say about you. It's based on what he's done for you and what he says about you. And so this morning, we get a chance to respond and to remember, to be with him, to listen to him, to respond to him. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we're so glad that you're here. We wanna help you understand who Jesus is and the difference that he makes in how we understand who we are and the life we live. But he has a completely different invitation for you this morning. In a moment when everybody stands and, and people begin to come forward, I want you to remain where you are. The Bible tells us that this meal that we take together, it's for God's people who have given their lives over as the disciples of Christ. Because every time we take the meal, we're proclaiming with our body, with our willingness to take the meal, that we have confidence in what God says about his son. This morning, the invitation that God would have for you is to receive his son. To receive his son as your king, to receive his son as your savior. So as people get, stand up and begin to come forward, that there are some prayers that are on the guide that you got on your way in that can help you. Grab someone next to you before you leave. Maybe the person who invited you, uh, pray with them, ask them to help you understand. But I'm gonna pray for us and and the musicians will play and, and then you'll have a chance to come forward as God's people to respond and to remember. And then we'll sing and be sent out from here as his people in this place. So let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning for the witness of your word. Lord, your word that speaks your promise of faithfulness, your word that speaks your promise of grace, your word that declares who we are because of what you've done. This morning, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to do battle with our misplaced confidence. Renew in us this morning a right understanding of the depth of your love for us through your Son and renew in us a confidence of who we are because of your grace. We ask that you would do that this morning for Jesus' glory, for our joy. In his name, amen.